You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 260, Fishing Creek and Musgrove's Mill. In our last episode, the Patriots suffered a severe blow in the South. Months after losing a large army of 5,000 men under General Benjamin Lincoln in Charleston, the Continentals lost a second army nearly as large under the command of General Horatio Gates at Camden. British forces now seemed solidly in control of Georgia and South Carolina and were preparing to move into North Carolina with no enemy army to challenge them. Before moving into North Carolina, though, Cornwallis still hoped to tie up a few loose ends in South Carolina. Before the Battle of Camden, General Gates had deployed South Carolina Militia General Thomas Sumter, along with several companies of Continentals, to disrupt the enemy. Back in episode 256, I mentioned that Sumter had captured a wagon train of British supplies at Watery Ferry. He had captured a rather large supply train of about 50 British supply wagons, 300 head of cattle, and 250 British and Loyalist prisoners. Bannister Tarleton had spent the rest of the day and night after Camden riding down fleeing rebels and killing them. His dragoons were a few miles north of the Camden battlefield when he received orders to move his cavalry to the west toward the Catawba River. With his usual speed, Tarleton reached his goal the next day near Rocky Mount. Tarleton's scouts confirmed the presence of Sumter's force just across the river. Sumter had been eluding forces under the command of Major Patrick Ferguson and Colonel John Turnbull, and had managed to escape from them. He became aware that Tarleton's force was shadowing him from the other side of the river, but it was not nearly large enough to take on his 800 soldiers. The two armies moved up the Catawba River to a point where Fishing Creek entered into the river. Marching in the hot August sun of South Carolina took its toll on both armies. Tarleton's infantry could not keep up. Tarleton took 60 of his infantry by doubling up on his horses and left the rest of them behind. Sumter, upon reaching Fishing Creek on August 17th, gave his army some much-needed rest. Thinking their position secure, the men stacked their arms and established a camp. The men fed and watered their horses and did their best to get some rest in the shade. Many soldiers took the opportunity to bathe in the river, and many of them were refreshing themselves from the rum that they had captured from the wagon train. Sumter himself personally climbed under a wagon and got some sleep in the shade. Now, General Sumter did send out sentries, and a short time later he heard gunshots, but was told that his soldiers were firing at cattle, and with that he went back to sleep. As it turned out, the firing was his sentries, firing on Tarleton's advance guard. The American sentries killed one of the British dragoons, 
and the British comrades then rode down on the two shooters and cut them to pieces with their sabers. Tarleton dismounted his 60 infantrymen and had them proceed along with his 100 men still on horseback. They arrived in sight of the camp, finding the Americans completely unaware of their presence. Being outnumbered by about 5 to 1 did not discourage Tarleton from immediately organizing into a line of battle and charging the camp. As Tarleton had experienced before, the element of surprise was more important than the relative size of the forces. Most of the Patriots were not close enough to reach their guns, and most of them ended up fleeing into the woods or were cut down by Tarleton's men, according to their standard procedure, which is give no quarter. A few small units were able to reach their guns and fight back. One Patriot cannon got off a single shot before being overrun, but those who stood and fought were quickly overwhelmed and killed. Many of the Continental soldiers who were with Sumter's force were caught skinny-dipping in the river. The attacking Loyalists promised them good treatment if they swam ashore and surrendered, so the Continentals complied. As soon as the prisoners were back on land, the Loyalists set upon their men, cutting them down with bayonets and sabers. General Sumter, like the rest of the army, had almost no time to react. He had removed most of his clothes before lying down to rest in order to get some relief from the summer heat. When Tarleton's Loyalists attacked, he barely had time to run into the woods, barefoot and half-naked. He managed to find one of his captains, who was mounted, and they managed to catch another horse that had fled the battle. Sumter then rode the horse bareback all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina, where he arrived safely two days later. Of the roughly 800 Americans present at the Battle of Fishing Creek, 150 were killed and another 300 captured. The rest, like Sumter, scattered into the woods where they hid from the attackers. Tarleton's loyalists recovered 250 of their captured comrades, whom the Americans were taking to prison camps. They also captured back the wagon train that Sumter had seized several days earlier, along with two pieces of artillery, 800 horses, and over a thousand rifles and muskets. Of Tarleton's attacking force of only about 160 men, he reported a loss of only nine. The loss of Sumter's army, only two days after the loss of the main Continental Army at Camden, solidified even more British control of South Carolina. As the Patriot military in the eastern part of the state crumbled, the militia to the west was still active. I mentioned in earlier episodes that Elijah Clark of Georgia had moved into South Carolina with his small band of militia after numerous fights with the British in Georgia. He had teamed up with Isaac Shelby, who had moved down from North Carolina with his militia companies. Both of these men were hardened warriors with years of experience fighting both Indians on the frontier and with Loyalist militia in the brutal irregular warfare that made up most of the fighting along the western frontier. I'd briefly mentioned that Shelby's role in the Chickamauga Campaign of 1779, at that time he had been a captain of the Virginia militia. Shelby lived right on the Virginia-North Carolina border, where the state line was not entirely clear. Shelby was elected to the Virginia House of Delegates in 1779 and took a commission as a major of militia from Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson. But the following year, North Carolina Governor Richard Caswell 
granted him a position as a magistrate and a commission of colonel of militia for North Carolina. In early 1780, Shelby was in Kentucky surveying lands when he heard about the defeat at Charleston. He returned to North Carolina, where he took command of a militia regiment of about 300 men, and it was at that time that he moved into British-occupied South Carolina. It was there he also met up with Elijah Clark, who had his Georgians, along with some local South Carolina militia. In late July, the men had assembled a force totaling about 600 men who laid siege to a loyalist force at Thickety Fort. Despite some impressive defenses, Shelby managed to convince the loyalist commander to surrender without a shot fired. The Patriots captured 93 prisoners, along with 250 muskets and a large supply of ammunition. Following this success, the men teamed up with more South Carolina militia under the command of James Williams. Colonel Williams lived in South Carolina near Fort 96, which had become the British base of operations under British Major Patrick Ferguson. This informally assembled militia army set its sights on a Tory outpost of 200 loyalists about 30 miles north of the main British outpost at Fort 96. The enemy was about 40 miles from their position and surrounded by locals who supported the loyalists. So, to keep the element of surprise, the Patriots opted to take 200 mounted militia on an all-night ride in hopes of surprising the enemy. They knew this fast-paced ride would exhaust their horses, but it would allow them to reach the enemy before the enemy knew that they were in the area. The Patriots left just after dusk on August 17th, which was the day after the Battle of Camden. They had not yet received word of the American loss at Camden, though. Following a long, exhausting, and difficult night march, the force arrived within a half-mile of the enemy camp by dawn on the 18th. The Americans sent out a patrol to reconnoiter the Loyalist camp. The patrol ran into a Loyalist patrol, and the two parties exchanged fire. A couple of Loyalists escaped and returned to camp with news of the presence of the enemy. Then, a local Patriot arrived in camp with more information. The 200 local Loyalist militia had received reinforcements the night before, including about 200 Loyalist provincials from New York and New Jersey, and another 100 mounted South Carolina Loyalist militia. So, the Patriots had lost the element of surprise and were outnumbered by about 500 to 200. They had just ridden their horses hard all night, making it practically impossible for them to retreat, an attack on a larger and entrenched force waited for them, but that also seemed foolhardy. Instead, the commanders adopted a common frontier tactic used by both Indians and frontier fighters, one that I've discussed several times in earlier episodes. Knowing that the larger Tory brigade was now aware of their presence and that it would likely attack in force, the Patriots sent out a group of 25 men on horseback to make contact with the enemy. The men engaged from a distance, then retreated slowly, continuing to engage the much larger force of enemy pursuers. The Loyalists followed the Americans across the Ennery River at a ford near Musgrove Mill and into the nearby woods. There, the attackers found themselves facing a semicircle of Patriot rifles and muskets behind hastily erected breast-high defenses made up of brush and logs that obscured their numbers. In effect, the Patriots had drawn the Loyalists into an ambush. 
Elijah Clark's Georgia militia held the left flank, James Williams' South Carolina militia held the center, and Isaac Shelby's North Carolina militia manned the right flank. Clark also held about 40 of his horsemen in reserve. The Patriots opened fire when the enemy was still about 70 yards away. The volley startled the pursuers, but did not cause them to retreat. The Loyalists still outnumbered the Patriots and were not easily discouraged. Loyalist Colonel Alexander Innes led a bayonet charge into Shelby's right flank. Most of Shelby's men had rifles without bayonets, and while they held their lines, the Patriot lines began to falter. Clark then ordered in his reserves. Around this same time, a rifleman managed to shoot Colonel Innes, who fell off his horse. The arrival of the reserves and the apparent death of the Loyalist commander caused the attackers to finally falter. Shelby at this point saw his moment. The experienced Indian fighter gave an Indian war cry and charged forward with his men. The Tories began to fall back, but they didn't panic and run. They began taking heavy casualties, especially among the officers who were prime targets for the backwoods riflemen. Then Clark's left wing, who had only been firing from a distance, also joined the charge at the Loyalists. At that point, the Tories were forced to flee the field. The entire action lasted about an hour, with the hand-to-hand fighting only maybe about 15 minutes. The Loyalists had taken terrible casualties, nearly half of the 500-man force, 63 killed, 90 wounded, and 70 taken prisoner. By comparison, the Patriots suffered 4 killed and 7 wounded. Aware that an even larger force might come after them, the Americans then retreated with their prisoners back towards their own main force. British Major Patrick Ferguson did send a cavalry in pursuit, but they were unable to catch up with them. So, in the span of about 48 hours, the American militia had engaged in a 40-mile night ride, then prepared for and fought a successful battle against a far superior force, and then spent the rest of the day and all night riding back 60 miles while being pursued by Loyalist cavalry. On the return ride, many men had to dismount and run alongside their horses in order to give the exhausted animals some relief. During the entire time, the men never stopped to rest or eat. They snacked on green corn and peaches and whatever else they carried with them. When they finally returned to the main camp on August 19th, the exhausted men practically fell from their saddles. Shelby, who was no stranger to brutal Indian warfare, called this fight, quote, one of the hardest ever fought in the United States with small arms. The returning soldiers were also greeted with the news of the loss at Camden. They knew that the British would focus on any remaining forces of any size in the region, so the men opted to move further west over the mountains to prepare for a likely attack from Ferguson's loyalists. As the British Army and the Loyalists secured control of South Carolina, at least the inhabitants thought they could look forward to the return of some peace and order. Anyone who thought that, however, was in for a rude awakening. Just after the British victory at Camden, General Cornwallis issued standing orders that any man who accepted parole after the capture of Charleston and then took up arms again with the Patriot militia would not be considered a prisoner of war but instead would be hanged as a traitor. Not even a trial was needed. Cornwallis decreed instant death. 
many men who were determined not to take up arms again also found that they could not simply be left alone. Loyalist bands raided plantations, taking all the animals, crops, and anything of value. Often they burned what they could not carry, leaving the people with nothing. Anyone who refused to join a Loyalist militia was considered a traitor and often treated as such. Many accounts from the time describe these Tory raiders as men of the lower sort, who took the current instability as a chance to go after their neighbors with more land and wealth, and perhaps settle some old scores. One early historian described them as, quote, ignorant, unprincipled banditti, to whom idleness, licentiousness, and deeds of violence were familiar. Horse thieves and others whose crimes had exiled them from society attached themselves to the British. Now, some of that is probably a little biased, but we do know that there were men on both sides who came from higher and lower rungs of society. But the fears among the patriots of these raiders was a major factor in their decision to act. I also don't want to leave you with the impression that it was the Loyalists who necessarily started the brutality. Many Loyalist depredations were a response to even earlier depravities by the patriots. One of the more notorious Loyalist leaders from this time was William Bloody Bill Cunningham. Much of his rage came from the fact that Patriot partisans had murdered his crippled and epileptic brother several years earlier. Cunningham himself had to flee to Florida and only came back for revenge after the British invasion of South Carolina. In his efforts to rebuild a Patriot army in South Carolina, General Sumter offered signing bounties to men who joined his regiment. Among the bounties was the promise of slaves, one slave for every ten months of service. He intended to make good on his promises by raiding the slaves on Loyalist plantations and using his captured human plunder as payment. Similarly, British officers and Loyalists often used slaves as currency to punish their enemies and reward their friends. There is sometimes a mistaken belief that the British just liberated whatever slaves they came across. Absolutely not true. Some slaves were liberated near the end of the war, mostly men who volunteered to fight alongside the British and provided service voluntarily. But many slaves were captured, and these were often sold, given out to other loyalists, or taken to places in the West Indies where they were continued to be held in involuntary servitude. The cycle of violence between the Loyalists and Patriots continued to grow after Camden. Patriots began executing men suspected of being Loyalists. There's one account of Patriots breaking into the home of known Loyalists and shooting several of them while they lay in their sickbed with smallpox. After the Tories captured Francis Marion's nephew, Gabriel, his captors unceremoniously put a shotgun at the young man's chest and pulled the trigger killing him instantly. There are numerous stories on both sides of patriots and loyalist partisans chasing down smaller groups of the enemy and mercilessly hacking them to death, their former neighbors, without any mercy. There are also examples of an enemy being promised decent treatment if they surrendered and then once they laid down their arms being executed. I mentioned this happened at Fishing Creek, but it also happened other places. Major James Weymouth, who's sometimes called the second most hated British officer in the South, after Colonel Bannister Tarleton, of course. Weismuth was a Scottish career officer in the British Army. 
He had served through the whole war in America, coming in with the first waves of soldiers sent to Boston in 1775. For a time, he commanded the Queen's Rangers in New York before turning over command of that famous regiment to Colonel John Graves Simcoe and taking his own command of a British regular company. Cornwallis had directed Weymouth to visit devastation upon the South Carolina countryside, destroying the plantations of anyone who refused to serve in the Loyalist militia and executing any man who they just believed to support the Patriots. During one of these raids, Weymouth was ambushed by Sumter's partisans. He was wounded and left behind with several other wounded soldiers as the regiment retreated. After his capture, Sumter personally interrogated the wounded officer and found a list of all the plantations he had destroyed and all the patriots he had executed. In what I can only describe as an amazing display of mercy, Sumter threw the list into a fire, saying that if any of his men had seen it, they would have executed the officer immediately. Sumter was probably unaware at the time that Wymus had previously sent out several squads of men who had been directed to assassinate Sumter. Later, Wymus would try to hunt down a known patriot leader named James Frierson. After his wife refused to give up his location, Wymus locked her and her four-year-old child in their home and set it ablaze. Fortunately, the woman and child were able to escape, but Wymus had a, developed a real reputation for cruelty, and he also picked up a penchant for burning churches. Around this same time, Tarleton was trying to capture Francis Marion. After having no success, Tarleton ordered all the plantations in the region to be burned to the ground. He even made a special visit to the plantation of General Richard Richardson, a militia officer who died in British custody after the surrender of Charleston. Richardson's body had been returned to his plantation and buried in the family plot. Tarleton dug up the corpse and began abusing it in front of Richardson's widow and children. He then burned the plantation and all of its buildings, after locking the farm animals in the buildings to be consumed in the fire. As I said, this was a brutal war, and the brutality would only continue as both sides used whatever violence they could to achieve their goals. Now, next time, we're going to head even further south as Cornwallis finds that even Georgia continues to suffer from partisan attacks. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club. 
George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Note that Knox Press publishes a lot of great American Revolution books, but they also publish a lot of other history books as well, so be sure to go check out their selection at knoxpress.com. Thanks also to Christian Crimmins and Carolyn Wood for generous one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo, and thanks to Ken Canestrini, who sent me a gift via Apple Pay. Ken, I'm still struggling to figure out how Apple Pay works, but I do appreciate it and I hope to get it resolved soon. I wanted to mention that I am head of the American Revolution of Roundtable of South Jersey, and we're going to be holding a holiday party in Mount Holly, New Jersey, on Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. There's going to be free food and good conversation, lots of good company, hanging out with your fellow American Revolution fans. I'm also trying to put together some trivia contests with prizes. So even if you've never been to one of our roundtable events before, you're more than welcome to attend. It's a great opportunity for us to meet and chat. I love talking with anyone about the Revolutionary War. If you're anywhere near Mount Holly, please join me on December 13th. I look forward to seeing you there. Details will be in an email shortly to anyone who signed up for my emails and also on the Roundtable website, which is ARRTOSJ.org. And in case you don't remember that, I will stick a link to the Roundtable website on my website as well. Now this week we covered two smaller battles slash skirmishes in South Carolina following the loss at Camden. These ongoing smaller fights were the pain of frustration for British officials. Even after they squashed any opposing armies and captured large towns, they were unable to control the countryside. Small guerrilla bands made their occupation intolerable and prevented them from interacting with the population. It made it impossible to rule over a people who would not be ruled. As such, the war devolved into some of its greatest brutality. I mentioned some of the smaller incidents. Many people have criticized the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson for portraying the British as monsters. Of particular criticism is the scene where the British lock the townspeople in the church and then burn it down with everyone inside. Now that of course never happened, so critics pick up on that as evidence of the bias in this fictional movie. Now, I guess I share the criticism that the movie is biased, especially in the way it portrays the Patriots as having no sins at all. But the truth is that both sides did get rather brutal. Killing prisoners on both sides was almost commonplace. Church burnings were common, and I've noted a few cases where the British tried to burn down homes with women and children locked inside. So, the movie The Patriot is not really taking huge leaps when it portrays some of this fictionalized cruelty. Both sides understood they had everything to lose in this dispute, and as a result, both sides descended into a level of savagery that is difficult to fathom today. My book recommendation delves into a little bit more of that savagery. It's called The Revolutionary War in the Southern Backcountry by James Swisher. The book's a little over 300 pages, and the first third is backcountry issues before the British take Charleston, and the main chunk of the book, about two-thirds of it, covers the issues after the British take Charleston and the next two years of bitter fighting. I think it's a great read of an important part of the war that gets relatively little coverage. The author, James Swisher, published the book in 2007. He's a retired high school principal from Virginia. 
He's also written a biography on Daniel Morgan and several books about the Civil War. So, if this topic interests you, check out The Revolutionary War in the Southern Backcountry. There's also a copy that you can borrow on archive.org. My online recommendation is the book written by Bannister Tarleton after the war. It's entitled, A History of the Campaigns of 1780 and 1781 in the Southern Provinces of North America. After the war ended, many critics in Britain asked why they had lost. Tarleton published this book in 1787 to answer many of these critics. He put much of the blame on General Cornwallis, and his book actually spawned another book from one of his officers who was highly critical of Tarleton during this campaign. In any event, it's an interesting, if biased, look at the conflict by someone who was actually there. As always, I've included links to the book, which is at archive.org, on my blog and website. My question this week asks, what are some examples of poor military leaders during the American Revolution? Now, I suppose you could make a good argument for Benedict Arnold, since loyalty to your side is a key component of any good military leader. But as far as battlefield ability, Arnold was actually one of the best. After my rants against General Horatio Gates over the last couple of episodes, you might think I'd nominate him for the worst. And while I think Gates did put his own advancement ahead of the country, and he was pretty mediocre in the field, his administrative capabilities allowed some valuable contributions to the cause. I think the worst general on either side was a man named Matthias de Fermoy. General de Fermoy came to America early in the war from the French West Indies. We're not sure exactly, but we think Martinique. This was long before Lafayette or any other French officers arrived. Fermoy claimed to be a French colonel of engineers, although this claim proved doubtful. Congress, however, commissioned him a brigadier general and sent him off to serve with General Washington in 1776. During the Second Battle of Trenton in late December 1776, Washington directed General de Fermoy to slow up the approaching British column to give Washington time to improve his defenses at Trenton. General de Fermoy positioned his army on the road, and when the British approached, de Fermoy performed a military maneuver that I like to call a French charge. The specifics of the maneuver involve pointing your horse's rear at the enemy, then spurring the horse to gallop away as quickly as possible. That's right, General Fermoy just ran away, leaving his own men to face the enemy. Fortunately, his second-in-command, Colonel Edward Hand, took charge and managed to pull off the delaying action that General Washington needed. Despite his blatant act of cowardice, de Fermoy retained his commission and joined the defenses at Fort Ticonderoga. There, in 1777, General St. Clair had to order a night retreat in order to escape the attacking British army under General John Burgoyne. St. Clair's orders were that none of the officers and men could light any fires that night, lest the enemy catch sight of them during their retreat and destroy them. General de Fermoy spent most of the evening in his cabin, ignoring the efforts to get the army off the mountain in the pitch black. He then not only violated orders by lighting a lantern in his cabin, but he managed to set his entire cabin on fire and create a huge beacon for the British, showing the entire Continental Army in a state of escape. Fortunately for the Americans, the British had no plans for a night attack, and they ignored the opportunity. Shortly after that event, near the end of 1777, 
De Fermoy demanded a promotion from Congress to Major General. When Congress refused, he resigned his commission and returned to the West Indies, never to be heard from again. General De Fermoy's horrible performance disposed Congress against commissioning any more French generals. And in fact, they initially turned away Lafayette when he showed up, but they did decide to give him a try. If you have any questions you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.